Hello, and welcome to Lux Research's Innovation Matters podcast. I'm Anthony Schiavo. I'm joined here by my two colleagues, Mike and Kartik. Fellas, how you doing? Doing great. Beautiful sunny Friday here in New York. Yeah, beautiful sunny Friday in Amsterdam as well. Yeah. It is raining here in Boston, so this will be the <laughs> ASMR section of the podcast. If you can pick up, I have this, uh, I, I record in my basement and I have this big metal uh, door, sort of uh, basement door right next to where I record. So hopefully it, it doesn't come up on, on the audio, but <laughs> we, could do, we could do a nice, a nice rainfall ASMR section. As, as if this, uh, <laughs> the sustainable innovation stuff doesn't work out, we can pivot. Um, <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about a lot of different elements of the news. We have... A pretty active, uh, <laughs> a pretty active sort of set of, of news articles to go over. But first, I think we need to issue the first of probably many uh, <laughs> corrections or otherwise official podcast sort of uh, mea culpas. Not really. I, I think we did a fine job with this. But we talked last week or two weeks ago about the LK99 superconductor, which was. It's really exciting development. Um, a lot of people were interested in it. We did a whole section talking about what the potential impacts of a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor would be. And of course, because of that, it has turned out to not be a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor. It doesn't really superconduct. Um, I mean, I will say that I don't think we ever necessarily came out and said we definitely believe that it is a room temperature uh, ambient pressure superconductor. <laughs> yeah. We were just talking about the implications, but clearly, uh, you know, we, we bought a little a little bit too much into the hype there. Or at so least that's what you I get for recording an episode without me. I know, truly, the one episode that Mike Mike maintains his spotless record. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I guess since you didn't have the chance to sound off on LK ninety nine in that episode, um, being on vacation as you were. And now we have more information. I'm, I'm curious to what your t- whole take on the thing is and and uh, if there's going to be long-term impacts for, for innovation going forward from this. I don't really know about long-term impacts. I mean, I was, and we, you know, you and I co-wrote a piece about this for, for, for Lux um, you know, that I think was pretty skeptical about the uh, short news yeah. commentary about, about, you know, whether or not this was was actually going to pan out. I, I always felt like it was pretty unlikely that it was that it was going to, but you know, you don't want to jump to that conclusion too too quickly either. You know, I think that the thing that innovation leaders should keep in mind about about these sort of things is, you know, even if the science looks really good, even if the science had been really good, it, you know, it was something that was going to be, you know decades to never before it was actually possible to translate that into practical maglev trains or whatever. So I, I think there's, there's always a, it's always important to follow the science and, and these, especially these more dramatic developments, but you know, you also have to, to keep in mind the timelines for these, for these sort of things can be, can be pretty long too. Kartik, your thoughts? Hopes crushed. Well, we already, by, uh, uh, yeah. Are, are, are your hopes and dreams for a, a radical, a new uh, sort of energy transmission system crushed by this announcement. Not just that, even the uh, the aspect of uh, room temperature superconductors for fusion, which uh, would have been super cool. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I also actually went back and read the article 
and i realized that it wasn't actually superconducting but levitating um not a materials expert but they try to i think correlate to different phenomenon something like that so uh yeah um i'm glad that you know i could uh let's say not get into the hype too much <laughs> uh, you know and be like oh yeah we have changed the world sort of a thing uh, i mean there's, there's a good article in i mean if people are curious about it there's a good article in nature that kind of got into the to the actual science behind it and, and it is kind of interesting like there was a, the behavior that they saw which was you know the levitation but also um there was some unusual conductivity behavior that looks like it was related to a phase transition in the copper sulfide impurities in the material so this is kind of interesting science, but it's just not a superconductor. <sighs> RIP to all of our hopes and dreams. Well, balancing that out with some hopefully positive news this week. So we're recording this the week of the, uh, gosh, the 14th of August. Um, this week, we had a pretty significant state level court decision in Montana. Basically, there's a, a group of youths, this is part of an organized uh, youth climate effort, sued the state of Montana to basically get injunctive relief against the state to get them to stop operating their carbon-emitting energy systems. And in particular, I think there was a law in Montana that said the state could not consider climate effects, right? This is a sort of a conservative law or a sort of Republican Party position where you pass a law that sort of proactively prohibits states from considering GHG effects or other like emissions, climate change effects uh, in their decision-making around the energy ecosystem. And in Montana, there's a state-level constitutional right to a clean environment, which is sort of explicitly enumerated. Um, that's obviously not the case in, in the U.S. Constitution, federal constitution. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that later. But basically, you know, the judge found that, A, there was a lot of really compelling evidence that climate change is real and basically no compelling evidence that climate change isn't real. And also that there is a link between Montana's carbon emissions and climate change, basically. One of the arguments that the, the state of Montana had sort of put forth was, look, even if we decarbonize, we're such a small portion of overall emissions that it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, it's just a drop in the bucket. So, you know, us decarbonizing wouldn't actually stop climate change, so we shouldn't have to decarbonize. And the judge rejected this, which is I think a good. It's a good ruling overall. Like to be clear, this is yeah. a this is a really great court case. The, the, and, the judge is familiar with game theory. Uh. Yeah. Well, I think this this is this is an important element of the ruling, right? Because you know the overall ruling is in some ways quite limited because a U.S. citizen, as such, does not necessarily have a right to a clean environment. We could talk about how you could discover that within the Constitution, but this idea that I think just because an individual actor is not solely responsible for climate change, they don't have a proactive obligation to decarbonize. Um, rejecting, you know, rejecting that concept, rejecting that argument from the state of Montana is really important because it's a very similar argument you can make about, for example, a corporation. A corporation could argue like, hey, we're just a teeny tiny drop in the bucket of overall climate change. We're not responsible for climate change entirely. Well, I mean, it 
people make this argument about about the U.S. overall, even you know, while it's you know, U.S. is obviously a huge emitter, it, it is probably true that especially mm-hmm. the the forward looking growth in emissions, the U.S. is going to be a relatively small contributor. So, but you know. <laughs> It's not, it's not, I agree, it's not a good reason, but it's, you know, even at the level of the U.S., you know, you do um, need to look for, for, for broader impacts than just reducing your own emissions. You know, in addition to that, there's a clear link in the court case between the damages of climate change and the damage both to the environment and to individuals uh, with the, the carbon emissions, right? This idea that, like, look, like this is not just an abstract thing. This is a, a sort of a concrete set of, you know, damages that are legally cognizable, right, and suitable for for action, whether that's injunction or regulation, you know, in the long term. Um, yeah, to me, this is this is an important case. I mean, it could still get overturned. This is only a district court case. There's still the Montana Supreme Court, um, but. You know, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities here, and, and this is an important precedent going forward. Yeah, the interesting thing for me with this development was uh, the drop in the ocean argument, which is pretty bad. Yeah. Because uh, I think micro change leads to macro change. Uh, even if you're a big corporation, I think if the person at the top does not decide, you know, things have to change, the organization will still function the way it wants to function. So, The fact that one state is willing to make this change hopefully transcends into other states and they all start considering this and take climate change into account. But the one issue though I maybe have is regarding that statute, which prohibits them from, um, I guess, looking at the effects of climate change when permitting new projects, especially energy projects, is let's say you have a solar park or a wind farm that's about to be permitted. Um, Now, it's not that they are uh, low-carbon sources in terms of production, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. They are low-carbon energy sources, but it still takes a good amount of carbon to mine the resources you need, takes a good amount of carbon to even produce them today. I'm sure no solar power plant, or at least I can say confidently that not all solar power plants run on renewable energy power to make solar panels. So does that mean we stop deploying all of these renewable energy sources because they're not produced in a way that doesn't impact climate change? Because it might be a small drop in the ocean, but it still does impact the climate, doesn't it? So how would you take that into consideration? I mean, I think there's a there's a good point here, which is that if you're serious about being a climate change denier, um, it is pretty hard for you know to force a state or to force a regulator to really find a a compelling reason to to decarbonize if they are committed to to not doing it right in addition i mean the 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 law as such only forces the state of montana to consider the impacts of climate right they could say like yeah we've considered it and uh we're building a we're building a coal plant <laughs> like you know we, we, we've taken it into account and we've decided to say we don't care we've, just, we've decided it's too cold in montana anyway so we're gonna yeah you know uh, yeah. yeah we're we're fine sinking florida into the into the ocean it's not a big deal for us so there's that element of it and like you said there's a lot of pro and i guess this is something i'd be curious to hear your guys thoughts on in general but there's a lot of like 
pro-environmental arguments to be made um, that are being made for like basically extremely like NIMBY stuff. Um, or, you know, I, I think there's a story in, in California right now where um, over a hundred different environmental organizations are like rallying against um, who's the governor, Gavin Newstrom. He's trying to push through a, a permitting reform, right? That would make it easier to build infrastructure. And it's right, being yeah. opposed on environmental grounds by, you know, a lot of the big names, Sierra Club, you know, you name it. And that flavor of climate change or climate environmental activism that is anti-building, right, is not that different from the kind of conservative argument that you're making here, Kartik, or that you're sort of, you know, that you've just sort of just talked describing, about. not making describing, yeah. not, not <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I know you're a Trump voter or whatever, um, you know, mailing in from Amsterdam. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there's it, it, not really that much difference from a, a conservative position that says, oh, we can't build solar panels because it's like mining is bad or whatever. Although I'm sure they would do something, uh, say something a little bit different, but you know these these and the position of these these groups so i mean how do we get past this type of opposition mike or kartik mike i'll kick it over you first i guess well yeah i mean i think you're right to point out it it does kind of tie into this these drop in the ocean sort of arguments where you know one of the defenses of uh, these kind of actions to to block infrastructure or things like that will be like well you know this one wind farm or whatever isn't going to solve climate change on its own but I think the important thing about that that argument to to me, you know, from an innovation standpoint, is that you know, while as Kartik pointed out, there's this sort of moral or social force to this, right? If Montana is decarbonizing or if the U.S. is decarbonizing, right, that makes it easier to persuade other uh, other places, other countries to to decarbonize. Also, um, from that that sort of persuasive standpoint. But it's also, you know, if you're decarbonizing in Montana or in the U.S. or wherever, it means that people are innovating and they are coming up with new ideas and trying out new approaches, which could be, you know, a whole new technology or it could be just as a, hey, there's an easier way to to do solar panel installations on the roofs of this type of house or, or uh, you know, an easier way to, to integrate uh, some of the stuff onto the grid with energy storage or to, to you know, new techniques for, for laying new power lines in certain types of environments or whatever it is, right? But people will come up with new ideas when they're, when they're decarbonizing. And then those ideas can spread. Those can be used in other places as, as well. So, you know, while it might be the case that Montana decarbonizing on its, on its own isn't going to make a huge difference in, in its own emissions, when you, you have a lot of places like Montana that are decarbonizing, that does lead to more ideas and more innovation. And, and the spread of those is what ultimately makes it practical for us to, makes it possible to solve the climate challenge. Yeah, maybe I was, uh, or maybe I sounded like I was playing devil's advocate <laughs> when I made my <laughs> argument. But um, essentially, my point was that, you know, people are trying to find different ways to block projects. Uh, you know, where they could say a solar farm is not going to make any difference, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And I think that brings me to my main point to addressing these permitting issues, which is stakeholder management. I think, the, I mean, as scientists here or, or, or people at least with science backgrounds that are working on 
projects, they can easily say, oh, this is good for the environment. But the general public, they need to be brought in into these projects, you know, hear their thoughts as well, what their concerns are, um, and ensure that, you know, all voices are heard equally in, in a democratic process. Uh, and, and you know, take the necessary steps to decarbonize and maybe look at the greater good from the project rather than the small issues, you know. I think it's important to win the war and not just the battle. <laughs> so um, I yeah. guess these small things can go a long way. Yeah, I think, you know, to your point, Mike, because I guess I'll address that first. One of the things in the, the Montana decision is there's this recognition or there's this this statement from the judge that green power is actually cheap and it's it's in many cases cheaper than coal or it, it's the cheapest source of energy, right? And so it, it's part of the basis of sort of reject, excuse me, rejecting the, the claim of the state as sort of irrational, right? You have the court saying, look, well, like you're not doing this because you're trying to be practical or reasonable. You're doing this you know, you're rejecting a form of energy that's cheaper than what you're doing anyway. And that type of activity or that type of, of rationale gives the court uh, an important part of its basis to be able to make these kinds of decisions, right? Um, like the state can't claim that, oh, like it would be an undue burden on us to have to consider these emissions or it'd be an undue burden on us to have to change our energy system. The fact that it's cheaper, I think the... Uh, you know, the court points out that the state could meet like 80% of its requirements with renewables or its energy grid requirements with renewables, like pretty straightforwardly. It's like, this is actually quite easy, or at least this is entirely possible and and not a a particular burden, right? And that innovation, you know, I mean, that's a function of of cost reduction. It's a function of the scale up in the innovation in solar and wind, right? And other innovations, you know, you look at end of life, right? Where there's a lot of end-of-life issues currently with wind. There's a certain amount of end-of-life issues with solar right now. These are targets for innovation, but they're also reasons why, you know, a, a environmental group or another actor might try and reject, you know, this type of energy, right? Um, and so these solutions, you know, these innovative solutions to these types of problems will play an important role by basically saying, look, these complaints that you have or these potential sort of avenues that you have to reject these systems don't really make sense, right? It's the cheapest thing to do. There aren't these other environmental issues. You can recycle the solar panels. You're just rejecting them on sort of ideological grounds. And that's not a sufficient basis for a, you know, a state actor to to reject that sort of claim. So I think that's an important element of the decision as well. Just saying like, yes, this is cheap. Like this is easy. Like this is not a burden to, to do, or at least it's not a, a meaningful burden in the context of, you know, your responsibilities as a, as a state legislator. And then to your point, um, Kartek around sort of stakeholder management, it's, it's tough. I mean, I wonder what the, the sort of the case is. And I, I wonder what is going to shape that. Like, do groups like the Sierra Club and their activacy, d- does that shape consumer sentiment? Or are they going to be shaped by the, the broader public sentiment itself. Because it seems like, to me, th- these groups are increasingly sort of out of step with the public. Like, I think public perception of clean energy and, like, the IRA and all these things are broadly, like, quite positive. And, you know, these these 
stakeholders, these organized stakeholders have been sort of moving further and further away from that, or there's been a bigger and bigger split compared to maybe 30, 40 years ago, where I think they reflected a much more popular view of environmentalism. Um, so what's it going to take to get these groups more aligned with the public, right? Um, and 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 all, you know, paddling in the same direction, as it were, with with progressive like lawmakers i don't know i i I really don't know it it seems like it would have happened already um if not and the fact that it hasn't in in a real sense is is kind of (laughs) concerning yeah but um maybe to add to your point i think the interesting aspect of permitting especially comes to the grid side of things i would say i mean you need a grid to transport renewable electrons low carbon electrons and permitting grid infrastructure has been a major bottleneck in the u.s so, uh, I mean, if you have to build transmission wires, it's essentially just a transmission component. It's not a clean energy source. So how would you convince people to get on board with adding more grid infrastructure? Or should the U.S. find different ways to engage those stakeholders to say, okay, we can build more microgrids instead of large transmission lines? You know, if you feel transmission is a, is a big environmental concern for you. Very intriguing for me, personally. Yeah, I mean, you've hit on an important point here, which is that there's a lot of stuff that is not sustainable per se, but sort of necessary for the, you know, sustainability transition to actually, like, go forward, right? And, um, I mean, I think we see this with the IRA even. You know, it's it's one year. I think yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the IRA. And we've seen that, um, and maybe this is, you know, this should just be a good pivot to the next topic. But one year later, the IRA, we've seen a really big explosion in in investment and uh, activity around these very sort of specific channels, right? The, mm-hmm. the tax breaks for batteries, for solar manufacturing. There's now a huge amount of solar manufacturing being planned in the U.S., um, things like electrolyzers. But the IRA, you know, to your point, Karthik, it, it's not a comprehensive bill. It's not it's this very sort of focused set of tax breaks. Yeah. I guess, Mike, I'll, I'll pass it over to you first. Um, but one year after the IRA, I mean, has it delivered on its promise? Are these bottlenecks that are increasingly becoming apparent in things like transmission, are they going to stunt the overall impact of this bill? Or is this is it an unqualified success? How are you seeing it? I think it's been pretty overall. I think it's been a success, though definitely not not an unqualified one. We've, I mean, I think everybody you know, who's interested in following this has has seen uh, the announce a lot of the announcements and a lot of the you know statistics on how many you know battery and other factories have been announced in in the U.S. It's it's definitely been had a had a big impact. If you know. Probably, I'm sure, not yet as big as as we ultimately need for the climate challenge, as, as some folks have also been pointing out in, in the commentary around it. But there's definitely been been a big impact in, in in construction and and investment in these areas, which is 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 really helpful to starting to you know get people working on deploying these. I mean, and we've seen we've had so many conversations with clients over the the you know the, with renewed interest in investing in battery recycling in the US or investing in electrolyzers uh, projects green hydrogen projects and, and things like that um, so I, I do think you're, you're seeing the investment 
uh, coming in, which was the the main sort of goal of it. I think the bigger question to me is, you know, that's that's still a little bit unanswered is is how much of this investment and and how much of the projects that are actually being being funded now are really going to be be durable. You know, Anthony, you and I were talking about this yesterday with the yeah, I was going to bring this up. Um, was this uh, there's this one project uh, that Total Energies with Tree Energy Solutions announced where they're going to produce e natural gas, um, which is to say they're going to take a, uh, natural gas that that posts on Instagram a lot. It's a- <laughs> <laughs> extremely online natural gas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they're going to take, you know, green electricity using the subsidies from the IRA to invest in uh, green hydrogen production, right, from renewable electricity. They're going to combine that hydrogen with captured CO2 and make methane out of it. Um, this is not something that really makes any sort of economic sense outside of without yeah. the the subsidies. And uh, our colleague, RA, leads, leads the energy group here, right, was, was pointing out that you know, if they're not careful, some some of this methane that they're making could actually go into, you know, going to steam reforming and and get cracked back into to you know get get uh, split back and reform back into hydrogen, mm-hmm. um, uh, gray hydrogen at that point, and with the CO two being being released or maybe captured if it's a blue hydrogen plant. But anyway, and not something that makes a lot of economic sense without the subsidies, and not something that really makes a lot of sense to do at the system level. Yeah, from a climate um, perspective, from you're capturing <laughs> carbon, you're spending some amount of carbon to generate a bunch of green electricity. You're losing a lot of that electricity in the electrolyzer. These are not super efficient processes. And then you're turning it back into natural gas, which is just going to emit the carbon again. So it's like you're spending a huge amount of energy in <laughs> to, to ultimately <laughs> just put the carbon back in the atmosphere. But but what it does, and the reason they're doing it, right, is you can you can invest in these electrolyzers. I mean, the subsidies are. This is the thing that Ari has pointed out, right? There's there's probably going to be a lot of wasteful investment that comes out of the IRA because these subsidies are time limited. You need to think about these projects um, in such a way that you know they can they have a clear path to being viable without subsidies. And this one, in in a sense, of actually might right because they can they can build these electrolyzers now. They can run them presumably profitably based on the subsidies for the next uh, five years or whatever it is and making this e-methane. Um, and at the end of that, you know, when the subsidies run out, that'll no longer be viable, but you've still got the electrolyzers and, you know, a lot of the, the initial cost of those has been, has been amortized by that point. So, you know, then you could, you could do something more useful or sensible with them because you've got a, you know, a partially paid off electrolyzer with a, you know, effectively lower capital cost. Um, and so if people are good enough about, you know, it's not great, but if people are good enough about pivoting the assets <laughs> to useful, uh, it's, it's not exactly how you, you drew it up on the chalkboard. But, um, you know, if people are, if enough of the projects are good, or at least, you know, ones like this one that have uh, a clear path to pivoting to being something good <laughs> post subsidies, mm-hmm. then, uh, then I think you will see a long-term positive impact from it. But but that's kind of the key question. It's more like what's what is actually is the stuff that's actually getting built in a position to remain viable um, beyond the term of the the IRA. 
Yeah, and I think that brings us, in some cases, back to like the permitting and the infrastructure point, because what you need, what you have today is natural gas infrastructure, both in terms of consuming natural gas, but also right. in terms of transmitting, you know, managing natural gas. And we don't have that infrastructure nearly as much in, in terms of hydrogen, right? So it's a lot more challenging just to take the, the green hydrogen and sell it. There's also like market infrastructure elements, like what's the price of green hydrogen, right? And there's, a, there's like a natural gas market that exists. Um, so you, you're kind of, you know, in the positive case, Mike, counting on that infrastructure, both sort of business as well as yeah, physical, yeah, sure. like emerging in the next five years. Kartik, I mean, I, I'm curious, like, do you view this kind of thing positively or you think we're rushing towards more of a... A bottleneck and a and a crunch in five years when all these people have to start to figure out how to pivot or whatever. Yeah, I think this uh, ties very well to the article which Ari and uh, uh, the others wrote at Lux, which was the uh, IRA being a bumpy road or paving a way to be a bumpy road to net zero because it's essentially a financial instrument. So everyone is just going to jump in on the wagon, build whatever they can. Uh, e-methane or e-natural gas might not be the good way to go, but they would still would do it because of the tax rebates you get from the IRA, which possibly means at the end of five years, we have all these different solutions in front of us because people haphazardly decided to pick and choose what they felt was correct at that point. So I guess they have to take a step back and get more methodical in, in mm-hmm. choosing what's the right source moving forward. Um, I think one year on, I have not seen a major difference in that behavior. I honestly think that people should just take a step back, calm down, and then choose the right ones moving forward and use the IRA more effectively in uh, hitting Mm. their decarbonization goals. Pivoting infrastructure is really, really hard. (laughs) I guess that's the big thing I would say, right? You have a lot of the industry right now with a lot of built up infrastructure in chemicals production, for example, that's staring down the barrel of a substantial pivot as, you know, oil and gas production is set to plateau and demand for plastics is set to maybe plateau and and demand for recycled plastics is going to pick up. And this infrastructural pivot is this huge challenge that people, you know, are going to struggle with. And so like, just build stuff and then we'll pivot the infrastructure in you know five years or whatever is requires a substantial amount of um of effort right in terms of of planning and process and yeah i'm just a little i i'm worried that it's just not going to work out so i want to finish on one last thing um, you know, we've done a couple of interviews so far and I have a couple reflections, I guess, one in particular, um, on the, the interviews. We talked to, um, Andrew Holland a couple of weeks ago. He's the head of the, uh, fusion industry association, the CEO of the fusion industry association. And we talked about, you know, Hey, why should people fund fusion, right? In the context of there being a lot of other, more mature energy technologies to uh, to do. And he gave a, a set of answers. And one of the things he said, I think right off the bat was, well, you know, that's fair. And he sort of brought this concept of fairness up. And I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> like, um, you know, he was just sort of speaking off the top of his head. 
Um, so, and he gave a much more concrete and detailed answer, but it, it was sort of an interesting thing that I didn't, I wish I had sort of fully followed up on. We didn't have a ton of time for that interview, but this concept of fairness in, in innovation funding, like, Hey, we should, um, fund everything, or we should fund all these different options because there's a sort of fairness interest. I guess I was, it, it's something that stuck with me and it's been bouncing around my head a lot since then. Um, because I kind of don't believe that's the case. Like, I think our obligation here is to, to the best of our ability, accelerate the sustainable transition as, as quickly as possible, right? To reduce harm. Um, and I guess I don't really see fairness as, as a reasonable interest in that context. Um, certainly not in the, I mean, I think it's fine to fund like fusion. I think we have more than enough money and I think it's, it's worth doing. And, you know, I think from a risk management standpoint, you know, risk versus reward, it's worth funding fusion. So I'm not really rejecting the argument in that way, but there's this, this idea of fairness or we should be sort of pursuing all these things equally. And it, it's, it's sort of interesting because he made a, a point a little earlier in that, that uh, interview about technology selection. And I was like, Hey, like we're going to get to a point of having like a good fusion design and a bunch of other bad fusion designs. Like how do we pick, how do we get everyone on the same page? And he was like, you know, we'll just like let the market do that. Like, we're not going to, we're not close to that point. Um, which is kind of uh, cuts against a little bit this argument of like, well, we need to fund fusion because it's fair. Um, which again, like I, I'm not trying to be too harsh on him because this is just a comment he made offhand. But I was just curious, first of all, what your guys' thoughts were on that? And also if you had any reflections on any of the conversations we've had over the last few weeks. Well, I, I do think about the, the point about fairness is, is an interesting one. I mean, there's there's sort of a procedural fairness you want to have, right? You want people who are making funding decisions to make them in a in an unbiased way and not be, you know, funding one thing over another because it's their, you know, yeah. buddy from college or because somebody paid them a bribe yeah. or whatever. Obviously, yeah. sure. Uh, to state the obvious, but, I think I think I can agree um, with that. <laughs> depends if anybody's offering Anthony any bribes, but I think that you know your your overall principles, right? We need to be funding technologies and funding funding innovation and um, deployments uh, based on what's going to be the most effective at, at addressing the climate challenge or the other sustainability challenges that we face not necessarily on kind of what's most fair to the to, to the to the entrepreneurs um, but I think and this gets to the point with with fusion you know, there's always an aversion, you know. There's a certain aversion to the government picking winners, but but it, but to some degree, that that is what you have to do, right? If you're going to be effective, you can't be sort of totally agnostic to funding all different types of of technologies. Um, but I think it's it's a balance to strike between between doing that to being willing to say, okay, this is something that's clearly more mature and ready for deployment, or clearly more promising. We are going to funnel and concentrate some of our 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 funding and our efforts here in order to, to really advance that versus sort of a, you know, epistemic uh, uh, acknowledgement of the uncertainty, right? And that sort of, you know, what looks might look the most promising at one moment is not necessarily what's, what's going to work out. So you should be, uh, you know, hedging your bets and making some other investments and things as well. And that's where, you know, maybe that norm of fairness does help help to ensure that you do that and don't just get too, you know, locked in on on whatever the whatever the current consensus is. 
Yeah, I would definitely echo Mike's sentiment. I mean, I think it's about having that long-term approach and then the short-term approach. So focus on what you can today. So funnel most of your funds on what's going to help you meet your short-term goals, but don't neglect your long-term goals and solutions that can potentially help you get you know, to your long-term targets. So striking that balance, I think, is most important. And I mean, if fairness as a term means equal funding for all technologies, then I guess, or equal opportunities, uh, I would say, you know, that (laughs) would be unfair (laughs) to meet your decarbonization goals. But fund, I would just say, do not neglect any technology because they're far out. So just because they're early stage, they might take 30 years. Let's just not ignore them, I would say. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research. For more, visit www.luxresearchinc.com.